This is Bite Sized Blessings. Hello everyone, hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Bite Sized Blessings. I am your host, Charles Eaton, and this is the podcast designed to strengthen your week and anchor your Christian walk. Um, And this is a really tough and painful moment in which to be recording this week's podcast. Um, I have been furious enraged all week long. Um, There's a quote from a thinker that I like. His name is James Baldwin. And the quote is, to be a Negro and relatively conscious in this country is to be in a constant state of rage. And that is genuinely how I've I've been feeling, a, a constant state of rage. And it is, it would be spiritual malpractice to do a podcast this week and not talk about what's been happening. And so unfortunately, this might be the type of podcast that makes me lose um, a few of my few followers. But that's okay. That's all right. We're gonna we're gonna get into it anyway. Um, And I pray that you um, are with me and hear what I have to say in the tone and intention in which I'm speaking. Um, The text for this week is coming out of Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 42. Matthew chapter 5 verses 38 to 42. We're going to go into a lot of different places, but this is where we're going to start off. Matthew 5 38 verses 42. Very famous passage. Um, I'm reading, as always, from the New Revised Standard Version, and this is how it reads. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. I'm actually going to read the next two verses also, because it's going to tie in later. So this is verses 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. These two passages in the Bible are what I would consider, for me, one of the top two toughest passages of Scripture. Very, very, very difficult to read um, what is being said here and apply it and find the situations to apply it. Specifically, um, the first passage about turning the other cheek. Um, traditionally, traditionally, in a lot of pulpits and a lot of Christian interpretation, this passage of turn the other cheek has been, of course, used to promote um, an agenda of nonviolent resistance, nonviolent resistance, sometimes uh, not even resistance, but passive acceptances um, from wrongs done to you. And it's a really easy to see why that type of reading has gotten so much um, press, specifically, I should add, from white pulpits, but sometimes from black pulpits too. And I have struggled with that text. You've heard it was said, 
an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. I've struggled with that text for a long time. And I have come to an interpretation of that text, which I believe is helpful for me in applying that text and also understanding when to not apply that text, which I think is really important. So this is this is just my interpretation and my reading of this text, but I want to share it with you because I think um, it's really easy. And I, sh I should put out my bias out there. I have biases. I'm not an unbiased person. I have biases. I have opinions. I have feels. I have emotions. And um, I, I, I want to try and name them so that you can take to them into an account as a listener and not try and pretend like I am an unbiased, like emotionless robot, um, because that is absolutely not the case. So let me tell you my bias off the top. My bias is to ignore <laughs> this verse. My bias is I want to, I don't see it, <laughs> is my bias. Uh, my bias says this doesn't make any sense. What you mean, turn the other cheek, how is that supposed to work? Um... So I need to, when I'm interpreting this text, I want to sort of consciously sort of deal with my bias because my bias is to just be like, this This verse is foolishness. I don't know what Jesus is talking about. I'm not even going to try to figure it out. And that's a problem, right? It's here. It's here for a reason. Um, this, these are the words of Christ. These are the teachings. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, to try and write it out of scripture entirely is, is, I think, inappropriate, even though that's what I want to do. So when I was spending so much time thinking about this text, my first thought was, I want to figure out, like, when can I apply this text? I want to try and give this text meaning for my life. Um, because I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, like, if people I love are in physical danger, if someone comes up and threatens my mother, my father, my sister, my friends, my family, uh, if I have a child, someone threatens my child, there will be no turning of the other cheek it will not be happening that way. The hands will be thrown. Violence will ensue. I can't, I can't have someone threaten my child and have me say, well, turn the other cheek. No, sir. No, ma'am. That's not how that works. Um, so I had to think very critically about when can I apply this verse? To what situations does this verse apply? And to what situations does it not apply? And this is where I've come down to. I believe this verse is best applied in one-off situations when I have equal social, political, economic power with the person who's giving me issue. And all of that is really important, right? It needs to be a one-off situation where I have equal social, political, economic power with the person giving me the issue. So that means if I'm walking down the street and some young person comes up, puts a gun on my face like, yo, Give me all your money. Okay, I'll I'll probably just it's not worth it. Give give up the wallet. You know, it is what it is. If I if I was if I had a gun on me, and I don't think I would, but if I did, I wouldn't just you know pull it out as a person walks away and shoot him in the back. I would I wouldn't do all that. That's not what that's for. That's a situation in which I would turn the other cheek. Um if someone if I'm in line somewhere and someone like bumps into me, you know how people do that kind of like rude is like a assert dominance thing, whatever. They bump into you and try to move you out the way. I don't have to big up them and get them to th get in their face like that. That's okay. But notably, the places where I'm not applying this verse is in places and times in which the power dynamic is unequal. It places and times in which my own passive acceptance of the abuse and the mistreatment that I am under would perpetuate more abuse and more mistreatment both upon me, my family, or people who look like me. 
right? So, and that's the key, right? And that's why you got to be, I'm just going to say, that's why you got to be really careful about how you let white pastors and white theologians talk to black congregations and black parishioners about how to respond to mistreatment. Because there's a little bit of an incentive to tell the people who are being oppressed, turn the other cheek, turn the other cheek, turn the other cheek, don't respond violently. Well, why not? Because responding violently would put you at risk, you see. It would put their livelihood at risk. So there's a little bit of a jig in who is telling who how to apply this verse. And I am the most suspicious when people of the oppressor class are using this verse against people of the oppressed class. Because you're not gonna, if every time I go outside and I'm being beat down by white folk because I am black, and I'm just, okay, I'm just gonna turn the other cheek, turn the other cheek, turn the other cheek. The result is my own passivity perpetuates a system of abuse. This is, this is not freeing. This is not a moment of kumbaya forgiveness. This is me accepting and not responding to violence against me and mine that will not end. And me being passive about it will not contribute to its end. And I, wanna, I, I specifically wanted to bring those verses uh, to light and my interpretation of those verses to light today and this week. Um... Because I've been doing a lot of thinking about the position of the church and black resistance to white oppression um, this week. And <clears throat> I have mentioned this before. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, that's my church. Those are my people. Um, that's my institution. And they have some good parts, but they also have some places where they struggle as an institution. And we need to, we need to talk about that a little bit today. Um, so I, I'm going to read you a quote. I'm going to put the quote for the those who watch on YouTube. I'll put the quote um, in the description, um, and I'll read it slow for those who are on audio. So this is a quote from someone named Francis David Nickel, <clears throat> who was the editor of the Review and Herald um, in the 1960s, uh, which is the official Seventh-day Adventist periodical, um, their publication. And somebody had wrote into the uh, publication asking, you know, why weren't there much, why wasn't there much Adventist participation in the March on Washington and in the civil rights movement? Um, because there was not much Adventist participation in the March on Washington and the civil rights movement. And so this is Francis David Nichols' response to this person. And I think it's very, very, very uh, enlightening. So this is his response. Quote, we received a letter some time ago from a fervent reader who asked us where all the Adventist ministers were when a certain freedom march was held, a march that included a number of clergy. We replied that we could not say just where all our ministers were at the time, but we did know that many of them were in the hard and dangerous places of the earth, preaching the gospel to primitive, depressed peoples, seeking thus to lift them to higher levels. Our thousands of our ministers in the homeland were busy visiting the sick and afflicted and preaching the glad message of the soon coming Christ. Preaching the everlasting gospel is our great assignment from heaven. Hmm. Uh, one more quote I'm going to read to you. I actually have a couple quotes, but one more for right now. Um, this is from Joseph Bates, who is um, one of the... Uh, founding folk of the Seventh-day Adventist as a church, as an institution in the 1800s. Joseph Bates used to be an abolitionist, but stopped being an abolitionist 
um, when he received uh, the Adventist message and thought that Jesus was coming soon, traditionally in 1844. Um, so he stopped being an abolitionist after he heard the Adventist message converted. Um, and this is what he has to say about that experience. Quote of Joseph Bates, quote, some of my friends that were engaged in the temperance and abolition cause came to know why I could not attend stated meetings as formerly, and argued that my belief in the coming of the Savior should make me more ardent in endeavoring to suppress these growing evils. My reply was that in embracing the doctrine of the second coming of the Savior, I found enough to engage my whole time in getting ready for such an event, and aiding others to do the same. These quotes hurt me deeply because you have to see the duality that is presented in these quotes in the minds of Joseph Bates, Francis David Nichol, and this mindset that is carried on to today within the Adventist church. And the mindset is one of the work of freeing the slaves the work of the civil rights movement is somehow different from the work of the gospel. What? And, and, and it's not only different, but it's almost like a zero-sum game, right? Because Joseph Bates is saying, I have no time to free the slaves. Christ is coming soon. I need to get my heart ready. Okay. Francis David Nichol is saying, listen, I, and uh, the snark in his tone, I, I feel ways. Francis David Nichol is saying, oh, I don't know where our ministers were, but uh, I know they were preaching the gospel to a primitive and depressed peoples in the hard, dangerous places of the earth because preaching the message of Christ is our mission. I don't know, you know, where you expected them to be, but that's, that's where they were. And this is all stemming from, like this is coming from a place. Uh, Adventist as an institution, I know I'm talking a lot about Adventism today, but this is my background. Um, so that's just how, this is, this is how I see the world first, is through this lens. Um, but Adventism as an institution has perpetuated a policy of like not being political, right? The idea that uh, be getting involved in earthly politics is distracting. It is... Uh, keeping our eyes off of heaven and of the heavenly world. And we need to be focused on the soon coming return of Christ and not so focused on what's happening uh, right now around us. Um, and you see that philosophy sort of reflected in these quotes by Joseph Bates and Francis David Nichol. But here's the thing. Here's the jig. The jig is that it's a lie. It's a lie. The Adventist church is not apolitical. The Adventist church does not have a hands-off policy towards politics. No, the truth is the Adventist church is hyper-concerned with politics, hyper-concerned with legislation. They are just extraordinarily picky about which politics and which legislation they are concerned about. Here is the example. I went to law school. Uh, in law school, I read cases regarding the First Amendment, uh, the freedom of religion. So many of these cases, these really big, really important cases where people are debating um, the rights of people to worship the way they need to worship versus being in the workplace. So many of these cases are involving Adventists. 
litigated by Adventists saying, listen, I want to keep a Seventh-day Sabbath. I, you shouldn't force me to go to work on a Saturday because it violates my religion, so I'm going to file a case and go all the way up to the Supreme Court. These some of the biggest cases in this world are cases involving the Adventists seeking to have freedom to worship on Saturday. The Adventist Department of Civil Liberties and Religious Liberties is robust and vibrant, extraordinarily active, filing amicus briefs, uh, litigating on behalf of people. Very robust, very vibrant. So where do you get this sense of, oh, well, no, we're apolitical and we don't get involved in politics? No, no, sir, no, ma'am. They do. They will just do it for the things they care about which is the Sabbath. And that's nothing wrong with it. I love the Sabbath. I'm thankful that they are getting involved in, in, in politics and in legislation and in the legal world to protect the Sabbath for their members. I think it's great work. The lie is in, the lie is in um, framing how Adventists will get involved in politics as apolitical because that's not true. They just say, listen, if you look at what they're doing and you look at what they choose to get involved in, apparently... Sabbath observance is central to what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist. I guess that makes sense. It's in the name. You know what's not so central? The equality of black folk. That's not so central. Because you, none of that, none of that whole religious liberties arm, none of that civil liberties arm is aimed at the equality of black folk. It's all aimed at Sabbath observance. But then they want to say they're apolitical and don't get involved in politics because it's distracting. No, it's not distracting. They just don't care as much as an institutional level. right? I know there's black Adventists in, in Adventism and individual pastors. I get y'all. This is not about individuals. This is institution. They just don't care as much. And it's painful. And it's that philosophy of non-interference in politics which gets these verses about turn the other cheek and it's weaponized against black Americans seeking to self-advocate and self-assert themselves as human beings worthy of respect. Like, how can you not see the work of freeing slaves as the work of the gospel? How can you see the work of freeing the slaves as distracting you from the work of the gospel? Like, really sit on that and think about what that means. I don't have time to free the slaves. Christ is coming soon. So I want to end with this. I want to end with this. Um, that second verse, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Um, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I think we need to do a lot more work in filling in what it means to love our enemies. Because I'll tell you what I don't think it means. And this is not just my own thought. Um, I'm going to give you a quote in a second. But I don't think loving enemies just means like, be nice to them. Be kind hug them, feel emotional affection for them. No, 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 this is, this is much deeper than that. This is much deeper than that. I'm going to rely on um, a quote from James Cone. James Cone is one of the founders of black theology, fa fathers and founders of black theology. And, and James Cone had a really uh, very powerful uh, message about what it, what it means to love one's enemies. And I'm going to read a snippet of that. And I'll put this quote in the description as well. So here's the quote from James Cone about what it means to love your enemies. It seems that whites forget about the necessary, necessary interrelatedness of love, justice, and power when they encounter black people. Love becomes emotional and sentimental. 
This sentimental, condescending love accounts for their desire to help by relieving the physical pains of the suffering blacks so they can satisfy their own religious piety and keep the poor powerless. But the new blacks redeemed in Christ must refuse their help and demand that blacks be confronted as persons. They must say to whites that authentic love is not help, not giving Christmas baskets, but working for political, social, and economic justice, which always means a redistribution of power. Now, I'm not here to say that James Cone is absolutely right. Um, or there's nothing uh, to say against him. But I am here to say that there are ways to conceive of love, of what it means to love your enemies beyond feeling things towards them, beyond I must be nice if I see you struggling, if I see a racist lady struggling with her heavy basket of lemons that I'm going to uh, not help her with her basket of lemons. No, 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 this isn't about one-on-one social interactions of niceties and politeness. This is about stepping up and working for the betterment of all people, learning to see black people as equal people. And if you're seeing black people as equal people, redistributing the political and social and economic power in order to match that realization. And from black people to white people, that could mean that, listen, I might pray for Donald Trump. I don't like him. I'll say it right now. I don't like him, but I might pray for him. But what am I praying for? I am praying that he comes to realize the effects of his policies. I'm praying that he comes to realize what he has done, how people are taking what he has said, the effects of his words, and that he repents for his own racism. That's what I'm praying for. And I really do hope for that. Am I <laughs> how hopeful? Not very, but I really do hope. So anyway, um, discussion questions. And I'm going to split them up into two. For my, for my black people, how are you taking care of yourself this weekend? How are you taking care of yourself this weekend? What are you doing to ensure that your mental health is as stable as you can make it? What are you doing to ensure that you don't go crazy? That you don't go ballistic? How are you doing that? And to my non-black people, people of color and white folk, what are you doing in your own family and in your own circle of influence to ensure, to help that this type of situation that we're going through doesn't happen again? What conversations are you having with that one uncle or with that one auntie or with that one cousin who you know is going to think about this in a way that is perpetuating racism? How are you addressing them? Do you leave them alone? If so, do you think leaving them alone is appropriate? What work are you doing? I know these are leading questions. These are leading questions. I absolutely have answers that I think fit. But I want you to really think about like what is your role in this? How can you help? What is your circle of influence and how can you use that influence to love your neighbor? Okay, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity, Father. This is a stressful time. This is an angry time. I am upset. I am furious. I am enraged. And I don't know where to put it. But God, you are good.
And Lord, you see. I pray, Lord, for the safety of the people who are protesting. I pray that folks keep their hands off the trigger finger, that lives are not needlessly wasted protesting the treatment of black folk at the hands of police and and racism in this country. I pray for the family of George Floyd. Lord, I can't even imagine. Lord, I pray for the listeners, black and non-black, as we must wrestle with and cope with what it means to be a Christian in these times. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. See you next week on Bite-Sized Blessings.